Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times book podcast. And we're talking today about Widowland, the title we've chosen as this month's book club title. The book was suggested to us by one of our freelance contributors, Richard Lamy, and I'm so glad he drew it to my attention. And I'm even more delighted to be in conversation now with the author, C.J. Carey. Thank you so much for coming in and talking to me. And could we start with your pen name? I know you as Jane Thin. Why does this book appear under a different name? Hello, it's lovely to be on on this podcast. Um, and you're quite right, I write under the name Jane Thim, which is my, my real name. Um, but when I wrote this book, I've previously written um, very, very, I hope, accurate historical novels set in pre-war and wartime Europe. And I always strove to get details very exact. And so when I had this idea for an alternate history, a counterfactual, I really worried that it was something completely um against the grain of what I'd done before. So I thought, well, the best thing to do would be to use a pen name. And then my publisher said, well, you know, maybe if you use initials in this pen name, um, you'll get more male readers as well, because it's it's quite well known that um, men sometimes don't like women's um, names um, in as their authors and would sli- slightly prefer initials. So, um, Hence J.K. So Rowling. <laughs> J.K. Yeah. Rowling springs yeah. immediately to mind. So that's what I did. And I think it worked, although it's very odd having a pen name. It does feel like a different you. Mm-hmm. But um, there you go. I've done it now. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about the story of Widowland, Jane. So um, Widowland is an alternative history set in 1953. And it's coronation the coronation is coming up but it's not the coronation of queen elizabeth it's the coronation of edward and wallace and they've waited 13 years for this moment since england and germany formed a grand alliance and england became a protectorate under the aegis of alfred rosenberg who was a very a senior nazi um guru And he has now moved to England, the Alliance territories, and he has instituted a very stern rule. And in his rule, um, one of the things that he's done is to institute a caste system for women. This is something that Rosenberg himself was interested in. And in this caste system, six castes for women, um, the elites at the top are nicknamed Gellies after Angela Raupel, who was Hitler's niece, and they go down and there's, um, there are Claras, who are named after Hitler's mother, who, who were women with a lot of children, and right at the bottom of the cast are Friedas, and Friedas are women over 50 who have no husband and no children, and they are useless to society, and they live in areas nicknamed Widowlands, which are run-down, derelict areas on the edges of town. And the name Frieders comes from a word that was used genuinely at the end of the war in Germany when rationing was being um, organised. And the lowest category for rationing was indeed 
women over 50 with no children, no husband, they got the, they got the worst rations and they were called uh, Friedhofsfrauen, which um, means cemetery women, you know, because they were useless. So I thought, actually, if you have a collection of women over 50 all together, they're probably going to be the most literate people in society. And so I thought it would be wonderful if it was from there that the subversion arose. So that's what happens. Widowlands a thriller and uh, set over two weeks in the run-up to coronation and the, the widows are very, very important characters in it. And I read in an interview you gave when the book came out, Jane, that this was partly inspired, the idea for this book was inspired by your own experience of widowhood. And I wondered if you'd mind telling us a little bit about that. Well, certainly the title. So what what happened was that shortly after my husband, my husband was a thriller writer called Philip Kerr, and he died in 2018. And shortly after he died, um, I had lunch with a very old friend from my days on the Daily Telegraph. And this friend said, look, I'm so sorry to hear about Phil. Um, perhaps... Um, we'd like to invite you to dinner. And I said, oh, good, that would be lovely. And he said, but the thing is, we only have couples to dinner. And um, I was pretty gobsmacked, as you can imagine. And when I walked home, I remember thinking, oh, I'm living in Widowland now. And then I, I thought at the same time, oh, wow, that's a great title um, for a novel. And I remember going home and just sitting at, at my computer and doing a synopsis because it just seemed to roll off. Um, so unusual that a novel starts that way. And I'm quite sure, in, in his interest, my, to his credit, my old friend had no idea that he'd said something kind of, you know, gauche. It was just like, you know, a statement of fact. You know, we, won't, we only have couples and it's a bit awkward if you get a spare woman. Um, and, and I'm quite sure any widows you, you have out there um, would recognise this experience. It's one of the things that you notice and you adjust to pretty fast um, when you're widowed. And uh, however, you know, there's, there's lots of other things about life and um, so I got stuck into this book straight away and um, it was great to be writing a thriller as well. I think it's wonderful that that story led to something creative and and I really enjoyed the book but I, I'm really sorry you had that experience. <laughs> There's something about the word widow isn't there that's very sort of chilly somehow. Well it's a it, I agree with you it's a terrible word and um, and I don't tend to think of myself as a widow but when I looked at the etymology of the um, of the word it means to be empty and if you're in journalism or publishing as both of us are you'll know that a widow is just something awkward it's an awkward word on the end of a sentence um, that really people want to get rid of you don't really want just a single word in a sentence you tr try your best to edit it out so I, t I thought oh my goodness this is a terrible word but I want I wanted to kind of turn it around I wanted to have this group of women who were um, a subversive intelligent you know pulsating force of um, resistance and so that's what they are and I love the way they live on the margins, but yeah. as you say, that's where that's where the resistance comes from. I thought that was very powerful. Now, I found myself reading Widowland around the Jubilee weekend, and of course that was very poignant, um, because in your version of events, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth and the two princesses have disappeared. We don't quite know what's happened to them, but we know it's nothing good. And the plot revolves around this this other wedding, this other coronation. Um, 
and that felt very pointed and I thought in some ways this sort of the presence of Edward and Wallace is a is a cipher for the whole new regime there's a sense that they represent dare I say it everything that's rotten about the Mm. new regime and I wondered how did you go about choosing which elements made it into your alternate world and which didn't that must have been an interesting process Oh, it's so interesting when you're kind of world building. Well, I started with the coronation because I always remember my mother saying that 1953 was the time when they got a television set because everybody wanted to watch um, watch the coronation on television. And it seemed to be a sort of seismic moment in post-war um, cultural history. So I thought it'd be great to start with people getting television sets to watch this coronation. And so that was one of the that was one of the things. And I also wanted it to be at once extremely recognisable as an England of the 50s, but also um, jarringly unrecognisable, because I thought that would that would be the best mix of things. So um, you've still got kind of um, quite a lot of the same, um, you've got Bovril and Tepity and things, and you've got, um, you've got a lot of the same, you've got House of Commons and, you know, people go to the Savoy for dinner. But um, you've also got an occupying regime and you've got this um, this grotesque caste system which people have learnt to accept, you know. So when we come onto the subject of my protagonist, Rose, um, I wanted her to have a journey where she's grown up accepting these things. She was 16 when this, when the alliance was formed and, and you know, gradually you just accept. Like in East Germany, you know, that's the way life is and you make the best of it. We'll come on to Rose in a minute. Um, But I guess while we think about the sort of genre, the sort of book it is, we're in um, the same territory as um, Philip Dick, the man in the high castle, um, Robert Harris' fatherland, Philip Roth, the plot against America. And there have also comparisons have been made to The Handmaid's Tale. Now, I know for any novelist, it can be quite a pressure thinking about other writers who've gone before. And I wonder, did you try and put those on one side or did you read everything you could get your hands on before you started oh certainly certainly on one side and um and i haven't read the man in the high castle um but um i I mean my actual and yes so on the one hand one's one's worried because you don't want to you don't want to be too similar to other writers but on the other hand a lot of preoccupations in certainly in the 20th century are similar we share similar fears and similar nightmares and um, so I, I I wasn't really bothered by that at all. What I was really, I started with Edward and Wallace because strangely I think that's the biggest what if of um, 20th century British history. Life would have been very very different if Edward VIII hadn't abdicated for Wallace um, and the more we discover about Edward VIII, um, particularly latterly, the more we realise how um, Nazi-friendly he was and that it would have been an extremely different, not only regime, but but for Europe in general. So, And that was a what-if that so nearly happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if Baldwin hadn't been difficult, if the rest of the royal family had acquiesced and not made a fuss, you can see how easily it could have been mm-hmm. that he would have married Wallace and Wallace would have had to just get on with it and be queen and um it could have happened Mm, so mm. for that reason i was i really wanted to tip the reader into thinking all right that's yes that did happen how would it be different Mm, mm. yes i mean it was very very compelling very very real so let's talk a bit about rose as you say she starts off she's a bit of an innocent at the start of the book 
and then she develops. Tell, can you tell us a little bit more about, tell us about her job. Rose's job is editing fiction. And this came to me when I was researching um, my my historical novels. Um, I, I was very interested in the idea of what Nazis did with books. And we all have this image, don't we, of burning books. Everybody knows that Nazis burnt books. But astonishingly, one of the things that they did, and particularly this man Alfred Rosenberg did, was to assemble an SS task force to go around Europe and go into libraries and private collections and seize history books where scholars and scholars would sit down and rewrite these history books to correct them to reflect a more accurate national socialist view of history. And this seemed to me at once astonishing and, and also completely characteristic of the Nazi mentality, this extraordinary attention to detail. And this is this is what happened. So I took the kind of imaginative step of thinking, if they are now in an alliance and, and England is now a protectorate, what would you do with English literature? Because English literature does not reflect Nazi views of women. And would you just burn all those famous books, you know, Pride and Prejudice, Middlemarch, Jane Eyre? Are you going to just toss them on the flames? No, because people know them too well. So what you're going to do is you're just going to edit them. And so Rose, who's not a great reader, is called in and um, she works at the Culture Ministry. And Rose is called in and told, look, we've got a job for you. We want you just to edit these, these classics just to kind of make Jane Eyre a bit, a bit more obedient or Dorothea Brooke in Middlemarch, just a bit less intelligent. Uh, or, you know, Lizzie Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. She's very, very difficult with men and kind of, you know, make her a bit more easygoing. So um, that is Rose's job. And without wanting to spoil anything, of course, in a sense, um, the Nazis are right because her transformation, part of the journey of transformation her is by reading these books, isn't it? So she starts off, she likes Dorothea Brooke because all she wants to do is serve Casabon. And then, of course, it gets more complicated. I imagine, um, I mean, part of it, as a novelist, you, you must, I imagine, believe in the transformative power of literature. That's that's part of the point, oh, isn't definitely. it? And yeah. I mean, that was the great jeu d'esprit of this, of this novel. I thought, what, what fun it would be to rewrite, um, or at least suggest little ways in which you would rewrite classic English literature to to make it um, more conform, conforming. I mean, it seems a hollow laugh now when you consider the, um, the rewriting of literature around the world. But... Um, you know, the Nazis, Nazis were, were keen on this. And um, so, of course, as you say, it is Rose, not a great reader, but she, she's sort of punctilious and, and she goes, goes to the library and she starts um, going through these books. And as she encounters them, particularly Jane Eyre and, and Dorothea Brooke, she realises, she realises that something much more intelligent and nuanced that these writers are saying and that um, they have something to say to her. So hers is a growth journey too. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And and Wooderland is obviously it's set in a dramatically well dramatically altered world a, a, a direction we could have gone. Um, I think I'm right. Um, well, tell me, am I right in thinking you finished it before the pandemic arrived? Or we, I remember that we we had the lunch with the publisher and um, people were saying apparently there's this virus. You know, we've heard about this virus and we were having the usual kind of. Oh, for heaven's sake! Sort of. Yeah, yes. Um, yes. So actually, it wasn't. It wasn't a lockdown book, even though it's about a very 
a Britain that is completely cut off from the world with full of regulations and rules and what you can and can't do. It was written before lockdown. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because there did seem to me to be some real themes about, you know, rule breaking and and sort of, you know, going along a certain way and one group of people who, you know, are very conformist and others who don't. There are a lot of sort of echoes there. And and even this idea of kind of reporting on each other, if you you know, for people who step out of line. I found myself wondering and you may not be able to answer it, but is there anything that would have been different if you'd been writing it either during the pandemic or, say, now, if you'd started now? I wonder how the experience of the last couple of years might have changed this Well, book. to be really accurate, I edited it in lockdown. So there's little things about people can't meet in, in groups of more than three mm. that I did, yeah. I did indeed kind of take from the, those early kind of sheaf of regulations that were issued every night on the as you remember on the press conferences. So I did indeed import some of those things. I have I have actually written the sequel. The sequel comes out in, in October. And um, the sequel was written in lockdown. And so there's, there's quite a lot more about the whole psychology of um, why people obey rules and what um, why authorities make rules in the way that they do in, in Queen High, which is the sequel. I very much look forward to reading that. And of course, then there's the whole question of what happens when your leaders are rule breakers and, and whether we do or don't mind. It feels to me very a very sort of current contemporary story. Let's go back to Widowland a minute, though. Can you talk to me a little bit about the place of um, faith and the church in your new reality? The, I mean, the church has been completely, um, I mean, not destroyed. The buildings are still there. But um, tell me about the place of, of religion in this book. Well, certainly it was one of the um, Nazi regime's missions to um, to massively downgrade Christianity. Um, Himmler particularly loathed Christianity. And there was a real attempt from the 1930s, all the way through the 1930s and in the war, um, to make Christianity almost irrelevant. So they would deliberately put Hitler Youth and and Hitler Girl meetings on Sunday mornings, which would make it very difficult for children to go to church. Um, We all know about Bonhoeffer and um, all sorts of different persecuted priests in, in Germany, but there was kind of subtle ways in which, as I say, particularly Himmler, but also Rosenberg, wanted Christianity downgraded because they wanted to replace it with an, a, a Nordic, mythic um, uh, religion, effectively. Um, and Himmler had lots of really mad notions. He had a castle with a lot of sacred, called Wevelsberg, up in um, up in northern Germany, um, where there would be a lot of sacred rites, and he very much believed in invoking the Nordic gods, so huge amounts of that sort of thing. But Christianity was... Of course, because Christianity teaches about the importance of the individual and um, and equality of the individual. So Christianity was diametrically opposed to Nazism. So um, yeah, that was a really serious thing um, that the Nazis the Nazis did. And so I wanted to bring that in. So church um, in the world of Widowland, churches aren't really churches anymore. I mean, they're not technically outlawed, but really only very old people go there and they're used for a lot of other things, community services and things, mother services, um, you know, and and girls' services. But more broadly, I wanted to focus on the idea of what what Christianity, part of what Christianity is about for me is... um, 
how human beings have to relate to each other and they relate to each other through through kindness and empathy and I wanted a world where that is really um, banned and, and so for somebody, in this case my protagonist, to discover for herself the importance of human society, human empathy, she's frightened when she first, well we'll get into the, we'll get into the thrill plot in a minute, but when she first encounters the widow she's terrified because you know, she's never had to talk to one and um, you know, she thinks it's a vaguely repellent idea. Um, and then, of course, she finds, you know, the very, very witty, literate, kind of humane women. And um, so it's it's very it's about humans relating to each other and and understanding a, there's a different morality from the one that the government preaches. So it's partly about sort of stripping away culture, but very much values. And the question then is where where people find their hope, because you paint a very very grey world, don't you? And it's quite difficult to find those chinks of light. But would you would you feel overall it's a it's a hopeful book? I mean, it's certainly a very compelling book. Would you, I, how do you feel about that? Yeah, well, I feel bad about having. I mean, I, I do think. Oh my goodness, I hope it's not too bleak. It's not bleak because what it's about is overcoming um, a, a kind of big, frightening regime that wants to crush you, and and overcoming it with the help of. Um, human ingenuity and literature, which um, obviously is very important to me, and and what literature does is it encourages empathy. You can't actually read a novel without using your power of empathy and imagining what it's like to be Jane Eyre wandering on the moor, or um, you know Lizzie Bennet going going out and um, meeting Darcy. You know you need to empathise, and um, to me, empathy is everything. And so um, I hope that those are the values it reasserts. But you're quite right. I mean, I was, I'm was i a bit worried about it, possibly. I don't think it is um, uh, too grey. And I think that the other thing is I wanted a fast-moving thriller because I don't know about you, but I, sometimes I've got a really short attention span. I want something that just, it's got a short time scale. I know it's going to be exciting. I know it will end, everything will be tied up at the end. And so... Oh. Uh, absolutely, and I don't want. I don't suggest. I thought it was gloomy. What I meant was there's a sort of grey world in which yeah, it, yes, against I know, the backdrop, I know. Um, and then the lights come on with the literature and the friendship and so on, which is which is kind of really wonderful. Now, funnily enough, I was listening only last night to a radio program. I don't know if you've been listening to any of the Michael Mosley "Just Do One Thing" series, but there was something on last night. A wonderful thought that reading novels is actually good for your health. Well, I, mean, I think you and I probably knew that anyway, but he'd gone through the science and what it actually does in yeah. the brain and as you say all of those things about empathy it's but beta brainwaves i didn't hear the program, isn't it? but Doom. it's about yeah. um so if you're um if you're just watching television your brain is in a much more languid state and your um and your your brain waves are not the kind of brain waves that um, you emit when you read a novel, which are beta brain waves, which engage the um, all different areas of your brain: the analytical area, the speech area, the um, the the empathy center. And so, the, by measuring, I read fascinating study where they wire up people either watching television, reading, or actually meditating. And meditating, you emit theta brain waves, which are kind of which are good. But um, it was it was very interesting. Reading is a different thing from just watching television 
and, good for the brain. And different again from scrolling through a phone or anything yeah. like that. No, it's very, very interesting that. And that, of course, you know, lends resonance to, to Rose's escape. So let's talk a bit about, if we can talk a bit about the thriller element without spoiling the plot. Can you just give us a few clues about that? So we're getting ready for the big, big um, coronation celebration. The bunting is out. The leader who has been in Germany, who's never visited um, Britain in all the 13 years that the Alliance has been going, and it's going to be his first visit. And that's indeed why Edwin Wallace waited so long, because they want him to be there at their coronation. He's coming, there's going to be um, a big conference later at Blenheim where he's staying, and um, everybody's tremendously excited. And then something annoying happens very annoying for the authorities, which is that pieces of graffiti start appearing all over public buildings. And these these graffitis are bits of lines from Samistat novels written by women, Virginia Woolf, Charlotte Bronte, Mary Wollstonecraft. Um, and it's fantastically irritating to them that the leader's going to come, and the leader, who is obviously based on Hitler, though I don't use Hitler's name, um, it's very interested in libraries, obsessed by libraries, and wants to visit all of Britain's libraries, starting with the Ratcliffe Camera and the Bodleian Library. And so this graffiti is a, is a disaster. And they have a feeling that it's emanating from the Widowlands. And so Rose is asked to go into the Widowlands and see if she can find out who the subversives are so they can be rooted out. And you leave us, again, we won't say anything, but you leave us on a bit of a cliffhanger. We're not quite sure what's going to happen next. So you've written the next book. Will there be more after that? Is, there, is it a series or um, are you not sure yet? No, I'm writing something different now. So right, right. But it definitely carries on. Well, thank you very much for the book, Jane. It's a really great read. We've been discussing Widowland by C.J. Carey, which is published by Quercus, and you can read Richard Lamey's introductory essay and see some questions for discussion in your book club in the Church Times later this month. And now, Jane, part two of this podcast is where I ask you to recommend something you've been reading recently that you think our readers might enjoy. Oh, well... I was, this this sprung to mind because I was having a chat with my editor and um, and I was saying, oh, one of my favourite writers um, is Elizabeth Jane Howard. And she said, yes, yes, I edited Jane for 20 years. Oh my and goodness. I thought, oh my goodness, it was like reaching out and touching, you know. How and, exciting. Um, I felt terribly honoured to yeah. be edited by the same editor. Um, I don't know if you've come across, well, I know you have, Sarah, the Cazalet Chronicles. But for anyone out there who hasn't read them, I can't recommend them too highly. Um, Elizabeth Jane Howard grew up in a kind of very well-to-do family in um, West London, and she in the, in the thirties, and she subsequently then married uh, Kingsley Amis in later life. But she's gone back to her childhood really and she's transposed it into fiction and it's about the sprawling extended family of a well-to-do timber merchant who lives in Sussex and and his children and it starts with um, the first novel is called The Light Years and it's set in 1937 and then it goes the next one's called Marking Time set in 1939 and there's five I think I think it's five maybe six but I think five um, and then the most immersive, wonderful, 
really heartwarming and not bleak. Um, um, and they, they're kind of addictive. And you meet other people that've read them, and that they're, they're very, very consoling. If anyone's going through a hard time, I can't think of anything better than to read these novels. Um, they're and it's full of wisdom and and kind of you know human joy as well. They are beautifully conceived, aren't they? Mm. And I think one of the things that I particularly love about them is they. Um, she uses the sort of multi-narrator approach. And each one is, is beautifully formed and you really feel you know those individual people so well and you, you, and you become very invested in their happiness. And in fact, the last book was written many, many years after she wrote the first ones. And actually, I have to say, I think, I don't know about you, I thought that wasn't perhaps quite as good. I was a couple of things... That, that was, was called Casting Off, That's right. It? And, and uh, that's set in the 50s, yes. isn't it? And, and you can sort of tell somehow there's a gap in the writing. That's true, actually. But that's... one of the other things I was really interested in, I don't know if you've read um, the biography by Artemis Cooper about um, Elizabeth Jane Howard. And what's fascinating, partly how many elements she uses in those books. But also you realise, of course, Kingsley Amis was a giant. But I wonder how many people now are still reading him. Well, oh, isn't that the truth? And compared to the, the number who are reading Elizabeth Jane Absolutely. And if you read, um, well, either Slipstream, yes. which is her own biography, autobiography, or indeed the Artemis Cooper book, what the story that emerges is, I'm afraid, sadly typical story, which is that she is a very promising writer and wins a prize and, and um, you know, has a fantastic, very early career. And then she meets King Amos and subsequently marries him. And he's the great literary lion. And she um, she completely submits to this and spends her time making meals for kind of literary friends to come and stay. And her own writing, you know, is either, either neglected or, or, you know, non-existent. And it's a great, it's a great tragedy. So a chunk of her her writing life, as should be, is missing, and I've, we've all had that thought. You know, which one do we go back to? You go back to Elizabeth Jane Howard. So what? So eventually, her relationship with Kingsley ends, and um, she actually left him, and he was um, became alcoholic, and she couldn't take it anymore, and she left, and she had a really hard time, and he was, um, you know, horrid to her. Um, but she then, in her kind of tough, tough singlehood, started writing about her childhood, and it was magic. And um, you know, people absolutely swear by it. Yes. Whereas, as you so rightly say, Kingsley Amis, who I once had a rather awkward lunch with when I was a journalist, um, Kingsley Amis is not the person you go back to, though he was huge in his yeah. day, and yes. everybody said Lucky Jim was the funniest book ever been written. And it, it would be very rare for somebody to go back yeah. to King's yes. Amos now. Yes, no, it's fascinating, isn't it? Well, I completely support your recommendation. I think she's wonderful. And if you haven't yet read her, you're in for a treat, which is one of the lovely things about a recommendation. The book I'm going to recommend is um, by Richard Beard. It's a memoir and it's called The Day That Went Missing, A Family Tragedy. Um, Richard is the second of four brothers and the story tells a very right at the beginning about the very sad death of his the brother who was um, immediately younger than him and richard and this brother nicky were swimming on the beach um when nicky got into trouble and drowned an absolute tragedy for the whole family but what's sort of fascinating and is at the heart of the book is that the whole thing gets completely suppressed and nicky isn't really talked about 
So the boys are sent back to their boarding school and they go um, a day late so that the headmaster can tell all the other boys what's happened and make sure that nobody says anything, which seems to me in 2022 quite extraordinary. But this was, I don't know, I think in the 19, yeah, 1978 this happened. And, and Richard very successfully suppresses all the details and all his memories. And it's made easier by the fact that nobody in the family ever talks about Nicky or about what happened. And isn't that, I'm afraid, very English? You know, I certainly come from an English family like that. It, it is. And and again, a lot of, and there's a certain amount of sort of rage in the book for all sorts of understandable reasons. And some of that is against the sort of prep school system that also colluded in this. You were sent off and, you know, you had to write these polite letters home and you never talked about emotions. And there were certain, you know, ways in which you were expected to behave. And Richard, in later life, sets out to discover what actually happened because he doesn't even know. He can't even doesn't even know the date. He can barely remember the year. And he talks to his um, surviving brothers, and and their memories are all different. Not surprisingly, they were all children. But even his mother can't quite remember. Oh, and when he's when he starts getting details, factual stuff from the coroner's mm. office and local newspaper and things, and finds some letters of condolence, all you know, all the, none of the details quite marry up. And it's about him coming to terms with this loss um, and his own sadness and this sort of family collusion, um, which seems extraordinary. But it's it's not by any means a misery memoir. It's beautifully written. And in many ways, it's, it's also a sort of love story to, to Nicky, a later in life love story. And I'm really interested in in the whole issue of memory, especially when it is associated um, with trauma and loss. I think it's... It's, it's a very live issue, isn't it? And we're, I think we're still really grappling um, as to how to come to terms with the way that we deal with with grief and memory. I mean, even if you think of the Grenfell Tower thing recently, or indeed all the people lost in COVID, do you... Um, take that old 20th century attitude of look we're just going to move on and um which was very much a kind of post-war both both wars yes. you know stiff upper lip we don't talk about that and we move on or do you do the the, the extreme opposite and actually spend a huge amount of your life reliving um the trauma and does that sometimes make it worse i think it's it's just a moving story of how we how we deal with it and everybody will have trauma in their lives and everybody will learn that it's not it, it doesn't develop the way they think it does and sometimes very consciously they have to make a decision how they're going to deal with that trauma for their own mental health and um the, it was so 20th century and it was so british to just not discuss people you'd lost people who are in institutions that wasn't talked about. And if you don't talk about something, you don't reinvigorate the memory, and the memory mm -hmm. does, I think, die. Mm -hmm. So it's a question of... I don't think it's a, it's a done story. I, it's not straightforward, is it? And I understand um, now there's quite a lot of evidence that suggests that trauma lives not only lives in your body but you can hand it on to the next generation mm. which is terrifying really isn't it's it epigenetic trauma it, it they is... know that that's right there's a very good book isn't there about that um which is the body keeps the score it's yeah. a big it's sort of cult book about how trauma affects you if you don't if you don't deal with it but saying deal with that it again is a sort is too simplistic I think it's. I don't think you can kind of just go to a talking group and deal with it, and that's the end of it. 
but I think at least people should recognise how trauma affects them. Yes, a friend of mine, I remember when my mother died, said to me, um, everybody's bereavement is unique and everybody's bereavement is also universal. And I found that very, very helpful because it meant that all, you know, people come and say all sorts of things that we might say are cliches, but it turns out they're mostly true. Um, And and yet we also were all on our own own sort of paths through that, I think, aren't we? Um, it's, It's a very sort of personal thing. But I think perhaps the very first step is at least just acknowledging that loss even if we do nothing else being aware of it um, Mm. gives us some chance of of moving on anyway that is my pick for this month the day that went missing a family tragedy by Richard Beard Jane it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you very much oh it's been so great thank you for giving me this opportunity it's been lovely thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to The Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.